I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But... God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Christ, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Katie. Well, it was the 13th of August, and 1961. Lady named Ursula was 18 years old and six months pregnant. And on that morning, she was lying in her bed listening to the radio in disbelief. 
the broadcaster was speaking about the construction of a barbed wire security fence that was being built through her city that very morning. The broadcaster went on to say that 69 of the 81 border crossings were already closed in the city. And you needed special permission to get through the other few. It started to dawn on Ursula that she was now separated from the father of her child by a security fence and armed combat troops. 1961, overnight, Berlin became a city divided. Many of you will know that story. There's a picture on the screen behind me of the wall that would remain until 1989. A city divided. Let me add my welcome to... Uh, those who have come before me this morning, thank you for being with us. It's great to have you here. My name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Unleashed. Today's a special day for us because today we're starting something new. This evening we're launching Unley Evenings. If you haven't quite caught up with about what Unley Evenings is, it's a, a new ministry that Jack is leading for us, aimed at helping our younger adults uh, spend time together in the Word, get to know each other better and encourage each other to keep living for Jesus. That's happening tonight, starting here at five o'clock. Please keep praying for only evenings and for Jack as he leads that. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes. But this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians. We started this, this letter last week. And I wonder if you remember what 1 Corinthians is about. Last week, I borrowed from Brian Rosner, uh, who said that the purpose of 1 Corinthians is to answer a question. I've got that. The answer to that question is on the board. How does the grace of God and the gospel impact the way we live? That's kind of the question that 1 Corinthians sets out to answer. How does the grace of God and the gospel impact the way that we live? Today, as we finish off off chapter 1, I hope you go home from here with with a sense of the enormous impact of the gospel and a sense that the cross of Christ changes everything it is the big event in the world it's the thing that most clearly divides the world the berlin wall might have separated east and west berlin it might have separated ursula from her partner but i want you to see today that the the cross of christ is is even more profound than the berlin wall it's more divisive in fact, it's more divisive than, than race or gender or social class or, or all of those sorts of things. How does the cross divide? Well, as we read in this passage, it separates those who are perishing for those who are in the process of being saved. If you've got your Bibles open, I'd love you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and turn in that to, to verse 18. Verse 18, I think, is... Well, it's perhaps the key verse in this section. And Mike's very helpfully taken us through the idea behind this with that which divides avocados in the world. Let me have a, have a look at this verse with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This is what it says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, one side. But to us who are being saved, other side, it is the power of God. Can you see the division in this verse? I mean, it divides clearly, doesn't it? Those who are perishing, they see the cross as foolishness. Those who are in the process of being saved, they see it as the power of God. 
today as we work our way through the last part of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, there, there are three things that I, I'd love you to see this morning. Firstly, I'd love you to see how this helps unify the church. How this helps unify the church. Secondly, I want us to see an encouragement from this passage. And, and lastly, there's a warning, I think, in here for us as well. So, how does this help unify the church? An encouragement and a warning are the things that we're looking at this morning. Well, let's start with looking at unity in the church. And we're going to go back to verse 10 of this passage to see this. And it starts in a way that I'm sure resonates for many of you, especially if you've got young kids in your house, because this passage starts with a quarrel, right? If you've got your Bibles nearby, have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 11. Now, Paul uh, is speaking here, and someone's been talking to Paul. I'm not quite sure how to put this. I guess it's been a dobber or someone from Chloe's household who's been telling tales, a dobber or a tale teller. Let me read to you from verse 11. This is what Paul says. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. If you weren't here last week, let me bring you up to speed. The very, very quick overview of this passage. Paul is our author of this letter. Paul, the man who's referred to here, is our author. He's the man who planted the church in Corinth. Cephas is the Hebrew name for Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Apollos is another Christian leader. And the conflict in this passage, it seems to mainly be between Paul and Apollos. And so a question that you might be asking then is, who is this Apollos guy? We learn a little bit about him from from Acts. Acts chapter 18, I think it'll come up on the screen. In verse 24, we read this. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He'd been encouraged in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will speak about how he planted and Apollos watered. In a way, Paul and Apollos then are co-workers, sharers in the work of ministry. Now, if we were with us a few weeks back, Jason Lim took us through a section of Mark chapter 12, and in that section he helped us to see the depth of corruption of the religious leaders. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that Apollos is not like that. He's not teaching a false gospel. He's not devouring widows like they were doing back in Mark chapter 12. So what's the problem with Apollos? Well, as best as I can see, Apollos has got, he's got the gift of the gab. He seems charismatic. It seems that his speech is perhaps more elegant than Paul's. Perhaps Apollos has mastered the art of rhetoric that was really valued by the Corinthians at the time. Perhaps he employs some of their communication techniques, those that were loved by the sophists, the wise people of the day. And so, factions are beginning to emerge in the church. Divided factions that are aligned behind their leader. Now, I said to you last week that we need to mine the gap between our age and the 
ancient world that 1 Corinthians was written into. But here, Corinth seems like a pretty modern town, doesn't it? Paul could be speaking to any number of churches around the world, or for that matter, any number of clubs or or organizations. We love to form factions, don't we, as people? And here the faction seems to be aligning itself around the charisma of the leader. And that in itself sounds familiar to our world today, doesn't it? We see this sort of thing all sorts of the time. And Paul wants none of it. He urges the church to be united. He he urges them to agree with one another in what they say. and And he counsels them that there be no divisions, no factions among them. Now, I imagine that many of you will know churches or even been in churches where where this instruction hasn't been very well healed, heeded. I'm sure many of you know churches where the divisions have become toxic and maybe they were due to the style of leadership in the church. I acknowledge that that's painful and hurtful and I'm sorry if you've had a bad experience with this sort of thing in the past. Paul's advice is to be unified. It's a clear instruction, isn't it? Easy to see there in the passage. Be united. The problem is that in practice, that's very hard to do, isn't it? And if you've been in a church like this, then you know that firsthand. The instruction is clear, be united. From verse 17 onwards, I think Paul is doing two things in the passage. He's giving the church in Corinth a very practical means, a very practical way to stay united... But at the same time, he's also addressing the factions that are going on in the Corinthian church. And as I read through this passage, it it feels like to me that Paul's two trains of thought are kind of intertwined and they're kind of wrapped together. And that makes unpacking it a little bit tricky. The first thing that I think Paul is doing is trying to provide a very practical means for the church to maintain unity. He shows the Corinthian church the thing that really divides the world is the cross. That's the thing that really divides. The biggest and the most profound division is not gender, race, class, or what preacher you like. The biggest source of division in the world is the cross. See it there back in verse 18. The divide again. The message of the cross. And on one side, we have the group of people who see the cross as foolishness. And on the other side, we see the, cro- see the group of people who see the cross as the power of God. And Paul urges the Corinthian church to be unified because when it comes to divisions, that's the one that matters the most. Saved or perishing. And when they understand that, the Corinthian church will hopefully see that they're all part of the same team. All part of the team that see the cross as the power of God. And I think he's saying that's a means for unity. Let me try and explain how I think this works. Imagine, imagine with me for a moment that you're waiting in the car to pick up a child from, from a school. Let's say only high school, my old high school. You're waiting in the car and as you're waiting for your child to come out of school, you observe the, the footy team, the only high school footy team, uh, playing on the footpath, kind of waiting for their bus to come and pick them up and take them to their midweek training. Now, as the kids wait for their bus, what are they doing? Just imagine in your mind. It's 2023, so no doubt some of them are out on their phones, right? That's a given. And some of them might be having fun, but I reckon 
there's also a quarrel going on somewhere amongst that footy team, right? What's it about? I don't know. Who can kick the ball further? Whose dad's tougher? That sort of stuff, right? They're quarreling among themselves. Unrest. And I want you to imagine something else happens. The bus from Urbray High School pulls up other side of the street and out jumps the Urbray football team. What happens? Well, instantly, doesn't it, the only football team kind of stop squabbling among themselves. They stop arguing. They kind of man up and they're looking across the street. The previous division of whose dad was tougher or who could kick the footy further, that fades into the background because there's now a much greater divide on view. School versus school. And the impact, isn't it, is that each school is united. I want to encourage you this morning to look around the room, look around the people who are here. There are plenty of things that might divide us as a church. Now, superficial things, whether you like coffee or tea, or whether, and some of you might not say this is superficial, but whether you like crows or port, or whether you wear a checked shirt to church in the morning or a plain shirt. These are the things that divide, right? But as a church, I want us to take courage and, and see that we should be united together because as a church that proclaims Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we are on one side together of the cross. We're on that side of the thing that divides the world most profoundly and we're there together as those who see the cross as the power of God. The rest of the world sees the cross as foolishness and we see it as the power of God. And so let us be united in mind and thought. And Paul says, let's have no divisions because when it comes to the biggest divide in the world, we're all on the same side. That, I think, is his means, his practical means for how the church in Corinth should stay united. Okay, the remainder of the chapter, I think, seems to be Paul's argument kind of against the idea of wisdom and intelligence and influence and elegance. And I assume this here is a, a kind of a critique of the way that Apollos was preaching and a critique in the way in which the factions were aligning themselves within the church. And the effect of these verses, I think, is to show us that wisdom and intelligence and elegance, and maybe you could say influence, those things don't save you don't become a Christian or you don't get to know God better through your effort or your skill or through having a big brain. Rather, God calls people to himself. He calls them to see that Christ is the power of God. And in doing so, he leaves no room for us to boast. Salvation, seeing the cross as the power of God, that's God's gift to us. That's his grace to us. We don't see that because of the size of our brain. Now, I want to be clear here. The, the Christian faith is logical and it is reasonable and it is sensible. To follow Jesus, you don't have to take your brain out and leave it in a bucket or something like that, right? Indeed, God's given us minds... And he wants us to use them in the reading of his word and the studying of his Bible and these sorts of things and the thinking through the applications. These things are important and that's what, that's what we're called to do in a way. 
And if you look at the example of Paul, we see multiple times in the Bible where he reasoned from morning to night in the synagogues, trying to persuade people that Jesus was the Messiah. But the point here is that God's not discovered through the sort of wisdom that Paul is critiquing against. Most likely, they're the practices of philosophy that were taught by Greek heroes like Aristotle and Plato and those sorts of people. Now, Paul preaches Christ crucified. He speaks of, of the cross, and in doing so, he's turning the, the Corinthian way of life upside down. He's turning their values upside down. They're valued sophists, they're wise speakers, they're great orators, those who are knowledgeable in the, the way of the philosophers of old. He's saying that's not how you understand the cross. The last thing they would have done is valued a device of torture and of shame. You know, today, today we come to see the cross as a sort of a symbol of the church. We've got one hanging on the wall here, don't we? And we've got another one outside sitting on the top of the roof. You might have one around your neck. The cross has become a very familiar symbol for us, very close to our heart. It represents kind of what we believe, but in Paul's time, it, it sort of symbolised, well, anything other than the church. It was about death and about shame and about evil because criminals were killed on the cross. I think probably the modern-day equivalent is something like an electric chair or, or the guillotine or, or something like that. None of us would wear an electric chair around our neck, would we? But if we think about it this way, perhaps you can see the contrast then between the preaching of Christ crucified and his cross and the preaching with elegance and wise ideas. A man killed on a criminal's death or preaching with rhetoric and flourish and elegance. I mean, imagine preaching that salvation is found in an electric chair. I mean, it's not, of course, is it? It's found in the cross, but hopefully you kind of get the idea here. The contrast between the foolishness on one hand of the cross and the elegant wisdom sophist interaction of the Corinthians. Remember, the cross divides. For those on one side, it's foolishness. An object of torture, shame, ridicule. On the other side, it's the power of God. Now, I mentioned before that there is an encouragement in this passage, and I think the encouragement is this, to do with how the world sees us. I wonder if you've ever been called a fool for following Jesus. Ever been mocked for your faith? I used to be an engineer quite a few years ago now, but I remember talking with my engineering colleagues about my plans to leave the engineering world and to go into, the, into ministry. They didn't mock me outright for that. But there was, for some of them at least, this sense of disbelief that I would throw away a, a good engineering job and the potential to earn lots of money and the opportunity to lead a team in an engineering business and that sort of thing. They didn't say it out loud. They didn't really have to, but it seemed like a foolish decision. Maybe in the schoolyard, people have made fun of you because of your desire to follow Jesus. Maybe you chose to walk away from a situation where you knew that Jesus would not be honoured in you being there and people called you a fool for that. Maybe following Jesus has cost you. 
Perhaps it was a chance to play on a sporting team or a promotion at work. They might not say it outright to your face, but you know that the people watching on think you're crazy for the way that you do things. I want to suggest that the gospel has never been about intellect. You can't philosophize your way into Jesus' family. There are, of course, many people in Christianity who are wise, clever people who are part of the church. But it's always been seen from those on the outside as foolishness. Let me read to you from verse 22 of this passage. Have a look down in your Bibles, follow along. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Here's the encouragement for us. When you're called a fool because you follow Jesus or because you see the cross as the power of God, Remember that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And I also want you to take some encouragement this morning from knowing that you are not the only one who's been called a fool because of your position in terms of the cross. The gospel has always divided. It always has. I want to show you an image of some graffiti um, it's a bit hard to see. That's the graffiti. It was found in the 1850s. It was scratched into plaster in a room in Rome. It was thought to have been done maybe 150 or 200 AD. Hamish, if you bring up the next slide, you can see kind of a bit more clearly what the graffiti looks like. Written in Greek text there are these words. It says, Alexamenos worships his God. And the picture is of a man with his arm raised in worship, and he's worshipping a man on a cross with a donkey's head. See, the cross divides, it always has. Alexamenos is on one side, and the mockers are on the other side. They're saying, how foolish is he to worship Jesus? Paul's reminder is that the cross of God it is the power of God. It's how, how God has acted in this world to unite his people to himself. And I hope that's an encouragement for you this morning. That's the encouragement. Okay, the warning. In verse 26, Paul seems to start insulting the Corinthians. Let me read to you. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's a bit of an insult really, isn't it? If you read this. It's like Paul is saying, you Corinthians, you are the most stupid, hopeless and born into poverty lot that there is. But, continues Paul, that's a good thing. Because the gospel tips the world upside down. And the foolish shame the wise. The weak triumph over the strong and God chose to do these things so that no one might boast before God now I said before I had an encouragement for you I wonder if this section is perhaps more of a warning for us 
So here's the thing. As I look out at you this morning, most of you, well, you're actually pretty wise. Most of you are pretty well educated. Maybe you're getting great marks at school or maybe you've already finished school. Maybe you've got a degree or even a higher degree. Some of you are doctors and professors and learned people and and wow, in one sense, that's great. And I could say that many of you are also, you have influence, you have powerful jobs, you have lots of opportunity to shape the world around you. Might be taking it a bit far if I said some of you are of noble birth. But you kind of get the idea, don't you? By the world's standards, most of us are doing pretty well. Here's the warning, don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking that what you are or, or who you bring or what you've done makes you in any way worthy of Jesus. Remember last week? It's all about the grace of God given in Christ Jesus. He's the one who called us. In a way, the first five verses of chapter 2, I think, kind of summarize all that Paul's been saying in chapter 1. I'm going to read these to you now as we wrap up. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with elegance or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. How does the grace of God impact our lives? Well, I want you to see this morning that the gospel divides. It's more powerful than, things, than other things that divide, things like race or gender. It's more powerful to divide than things like the Berlin Wall. And Paul's message to the Corinthian church, and I think us by extension, is to put aside our differences and to realize that we are united on the same side of the cross and to therefore come together under the leadership of Jesus to rely on the wisdom and power of God, not on worldly wisdom. And we're to do that so that we might not boast but trust all the more in the power of God. And I pray that we'd be doing that as a church. Father God, we thank you for Paul's letter to the Corinthian church and the way which it sets out to answer the question about how your grace and your gospel would impact the way that we live. We want to ask that you would unify us as a church and we thank you for the ways in which we have been united. We're going to ask that you would be at work in Christian churches across our country. They take great courage and encouragement from the fact that they are united on the same side of the cross, seeing it as the power of God, not foolishness. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust not in our own worldly wisdom, but that we rely on you and follow after you as our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.